Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. When Mr. Rogers sang Won't You Be My Neighbor at the start of every show, he was inviting the kids watching to share their thoughts and feelings about topics that mattered to them. Nothing was more important to him than making children in the extended neighborhood feel not only secure, but also heard, especially on topics parents might have a hard time grappling with, like the death of a family dog or sibling rivalry. That was LeVar Burton. He's the narrator of The Good Neighbor, The Life and Work of Fred Rogers, which was written by Maxwell King. It's hard to think of a more appropriate narrator for this biography of Mr. Rogers. Where Fred Rogers was the creator and host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, a touchstone for Gen Xers. LeVar Burton was the executive producer and host of the series Reading Rainbow, a touchstone for millennials. LeVar Burton and Fred Rogers were both friends and colleagues, and Burton was determined to narrate The Good Neighbor. It became a passion project for him. I'm such a, f- a fan of, of Fred Rogers and his work and his legacy, and I consider him both a friend and a mentor to me. And I know the man has meant an enormous lot to a lot of, of people, and I'm no different. I wanted to be the one to tell that story. I wanted to be the one, the voice of, of Fred's biography, because I, I felt like it would be a way for me to honor him. When and how did you meet Fred Rogers? Uh, first time I met Fred Rogers was must have been in the early 80s in Crystal City at a PBS gathering, an evening cocktail soiree. Oh, so on my side of the country. On your side of the world, yeah. And I remember being very excited because I was going to meet the man behind the guy on TV. That was, that was my belief, that, that that had to have been an act. I was looking forward to meeting the real, the real Fred Rogers not the guy that he played on TV. And so imagine my astonishment when upon meeting him, it was very clear to me that that was no act, that Fred Rogers was that present. He was that focused. He was that attentive. He was that open. He was that loving. Fred was a remarkable human being, and, and you got it instantly by being in his presence that that was absolute authenticity. 
Did you meet him before or during your own long-lasting series, Reading Rainbow? It was, I was at the beginning. I was at the very beginning. I think we had been, maybe had completed one, maybe two seasons, I think, of, of Reading Rainbow. You know, it's so interesting because he's the man for Gen Xers who grew up with him. And that's the spot you occupy for millennials who grew up with you on Reading Rainbow. <laughs> you know, Fred and I, we talked a lot about just how necessary it was to use one's television pulpit, as it were. Fred was a Presbyterian minister. I studied for the priesthood earlier in my life. And, and we talked often about the appropriateness of using our television ministry for the purpose of enriching the lives of kids. And it was really Fred who freed me from any sort of uh, conflict in that regard, that it was not just an opportunity I had, but that it was a duty of mine to fulfill, to focus on an audience of children with content that was nurturing, that had value, that was not simply entertaining, but was educational as well, inspirational, uplifting. That was the, the street on which Fred and I met, you know? Tell me how you approached narrating this biography of Fred Rogers, because I can see how knowing the person whose biography you're narrating offers both opportunities but also challenges. What, what might the challenges be? Well, okay, this is me. I'm not an actor. The challenges for me would be nervousness. Should I emulate that distinctive voice or ah. how do I get the essence of him across? Ah, I decided not to go for Fred's voice. I mean, his, he's got a very distinctive twang. There are a lot of quotes from Fred in the book. My decision to not try and do Fred's voice was based on my belief that in just delivering Fred's words, that the importance and, and magic... And there's just the great, basic, common sense nature of his point of view and philosophy. I had to trust that it, it will come through, even when delivered in, in my own voice. But these are Fred's. These are Fred's words. For Rogers, the very act of asking questions and trying to answer them honestly was the key to growing and learning. We can't always know what's behind a child's question, but if we let a child know we respect the question, we're letting that child know that we respect him or her. What a powerful way to say, I care about you. Did you discover anything about him you didn't know? I wasn't aware of how privileged a background he came from. Fred came from money. I know, that surprised me too. Yeah. He had a driver? <laughs> yeah. He did. He did. He had a, a driver that took him to school every day. You know, it, it surprised me to discover that he was bullied as a child, that he was also sickly as a child. These are things that I did not know about Fred. And, you know, they're all a part of the picture of who he came to be. I found myself crying in parts, and I wonder if there were parts that were difficult for you. There are some very emotional passages, absolutely. Yes, there are. I have had a wonderful time reading this book and sharing Fred's story aloud. I think it's a, it's a remarkable story. It's a story about a guy who did indeed come from a privileged background who didn't allow his privilege to prevent him from delivering on the promise of his soul, which was to be a compassionate human being and to reach out and help others. 
He was a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. Your career, LeVar, includes so many touchstones for, I think, all of us, uh, beginning with your first part as a professional actor, which is Kunta Kinte in Roots. What a way to begin a career. Can you remember what that audition was like? Well, there were several. Um, there were several auditions. Readings, callbacks, uh, March 27th, 1976, I was screen tested. The whole process was like walking in a dream, just from one stage to the next to the next, hardly believing that I was this close to landing something that could be so significant, and then to have finally been told that the role was mine. It was a milestone experience for me. It, it changed my life dramatically, Roots. Not just the aftermath, but the filming of it, the making of it, had an indelible impression on me as a young actor, as a young man. Meeting and, and becoming close with Alex Haley, um, working with actors like Louis Gossett Jr. and Cicely Tyson, Dr. Maya Angelou, these people who embraced me, who took me under their wing and brought me up in the business. Uh, it was an extraordinary beginning. Do you mind just explaining what that cultural moment was like when Roots was shown on television during eight consecutive nights for people who might not remember? If you were alive and of a certain age, you remember. Roots was a cultural phenomenon in that it captured the attention of the entire nation. It is difficult, though, to explain it to someone who has grown up in a universe of so many different channels. When Roots aired, there were three networks, uh, basically, and PBS. And we just don't consume our television that way anymore. But Roots was the national conversation. And for eight nights, consecutive nights, the audience grew almost exponentially every night. And the next day, the following day, it was the conversation in schools, on college campuses, in office buildings, around water coolers. It was what America was concerned with that winter of 1977. You know, when the new version of Roots was done a couple of years ago, I think my reaction was pretty typical because my memory of the power of the first one was so strong. I was, was why, why are we redoing this? Hmm. And then when I saw that you were one of the producers, I thought I was willing to trust it. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. But in point of fact, we did not make the, the new roots for you. Because like you, I had, <laughs> I had a pretty strong attachment to the original as well. And I didn't think it was a good idea at the beginning. But what sold me was the idea that we needed to keep this story alive for succeeding generations. And that for them, the 1977 version was probably not one that was going to resonate with them, number one. You know, they were not familiar with any of the actors, really. Part of the genius of David Wolper uh, Sr. As a, as a producer was that he hired all of America's TV dads some of the most beloved men on television to play villains. That was smart. It was brilliant. All of these TV icons were playing against type, were playing villains, and, and it lowered the barrier of entry for, for white America to sort of embrace this story. So th this current generation, you know, they didn't have a connection to those actors, and to get them hooked on the story and the importance of the story, it was necessary to make it again in a storytelling language that they could 
really understand with contemporary actors like Lawrence Fishburne, Anika Noni Rose, you know, Jonathan Rhys Myers, uh, Anna Paquin, Forrest Whitaker. It was really consciously done with an eye towards keeping the story alive. It, it also worked for people of my generation. I'm very proud of it. I, I thought the storytelling was superb. Again, not an easy thing to revisit an enormously popular piece of culture. Well, yes. Another enormously popular piece of culture that you were involved with was Reading Rainbow. It was on the air for 23 years, 26 Emmys, a Peabody Award. How did you first get involved with Reading Rainbow, LeVar? Reading Rainbow came into my life a few years after the Roots tsunami had sort of <laughs> had sort of washed over the world. And my mother was a voracious reader and my first teacher. She was, in fact, an English teacher. That was her first career. And so I, I inherited my love of the written word from my mother, Irma Jean. And I recognized that when the idea was brought to me, the idea being, let's, let's use this very engaging technology called television during the summer months, which is, you know, you want to find America's children in the summer? Be on TV, okay? And I thought, what a brilliant use of the medium, steering children back in the direction of literature and the written word through the medium of television by virtue of storytelling on TV. Very counterintuitive, and I thought, I'm in. This has got to work. I had just lived through this extraordinary example of the power of the medium to transform consciousness. Ah, uh, of course. I mean, there was an America before Roots, and there was an America after Roots, and they were not the same America. Roots served as a huge tool for enlightenment because the story had never been told before. This was the first time the story of slavery in America had been told from the point of view of the Africans, the black people. And it shook this nation. And so it just made sense to me to use this medium to spread literacy among children who are making that decision as to whether or not they're going to be a reader for life. When you're learning how to read, you either become a reader or you don't. And my goal was to take children who could read and turn them into readers for life. And you continued this with one of your present projects, which is the podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. How did that get started? <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time. I had had my eye on the podcasting space, and, and I had an idea. I sort of honed it, refined it, pitched it. They liked it, and it was, it was me and a microphone. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. You should explain what the show is for people who might not have heard it. My podcast called LeVar Burton Reads is, is simply me reading short stories. I love short stories. And I love reading aloud. Two of my favorite things, <laughs> reading aloud and short stories. It was a no-brainer as far as I was concerned. Reading aloud is a real pure form of storytelling. And it's an, an awful lot of fun for me. And short stories, it's mastery to be able to create a narrative, a beginning, a middle, and an end with compelling characters and perhaps with a twist ending in 30, 35 pages. It's not easy to do. And so I have a, a, a special appreciation for those who do it well. The short story literary form is a real specific discipline, a real specific craft. And that was it. That was the idea. People like it. People are enjoying the podcast. Yeah, you're right about short stories. There can't be a wasted word. It's like poetry in that way. 
It, it really is. It, 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 it really genuinely is. When it's done well and done right, it's literature that sings. How do you choose the stories? As I say at the beginning of every episode, these are stories that I like. And that's the only thing they have in common, is that I like them. <laughs> How do you approach the stories that you read on the podcast or audiobooks that, that you narrate? Do you think of whom you're reading to? How do you... How do you just approach it as, as a craft? I, I just try and tell the story, you know? Of course, you have to be aware of the audience that you're telling a story to, but that's, that's really the, the only difference. You're still trying to tell the story, serve the story, express as best as you are able to discern the writer's intentions. How is acting just with your voice different from having your physicality to create a character. I could be naked right now and you wouldn't know. Exactly. I could be too. Yes. Yeah. That's the be- that's the beauty of a voice only work. <laughs> you, you don't have to get dressed if you don't want to. <laughs> but really there isn't a difference except for the physicality, right? It's still the same process of imagining that you tap into. That's the wellspring. That's the font, isn't it? Our creative imaginations. And because when you're reading aloud, you're engaging the creative imagination of anyone who happens to be listening. And so you're taking a a medium, the written word, that is designed to create images and imagery. And you're reading them aloud. When you combine pictures and sound in your head, it creates indelible imagery or very powerful imagery at the very least. When you're acting in film or in television, you have other actors that you can play off of. Yeah. Which isn't true when you're narrating. It's it all has to come from you. Yeah, you 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 know, you play all the different parts. You play all the characters. You're you're no you're you're the narrator, you're and you're everybody in the story, which is also a lot of fun. Again, it connects me to that deep tradition of storytelling that has been a part of humanity since the beginning of time. It is the stories that we tell ourselves and one another that provide the context for who we are as a culture, who we are as a people, why we're here, what, what is our purpose, what are we doing here, and, and even more important, it gives us a context for what our unique individual contributions are supposed to be. It is through the storytelling that we are exposed to that, that we are meant to find our place in the world. LeVar, when you came to the end of narrating The Good Neighbor, how did you feel? Satisfied. I felt satisfied that I had done what I set out to do, which was to, to honor Fred, to give honor to the life that he led and, and what he left behind the inspiration that he created while he was here and still does. I mean, you know, Fred is very much alive and still inspiring us, still inviting us to be okay with who we are and and still inviting us to remember that he likes us just the way we are. Well, I love having you read to me, so thank you for that. I love being read to, like most people, I think. I think, I think a lot of us do. LeVar Burton, thank you so much. My pleasure. Your work has meant so much. I've been very lucky and very blessed in my life. And everything I do, I do as a way to make my family proud, to add to, to the legacy of my clan, of my people. 
And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And we're the lucky beneficiaries of that. Thank you. <laughs> Peace and blessings. That was LeVar Burton. He's the narrator of The Good Neighbor, the life and work of Fred Rogers, written by Maxwell King. It's one of hundreds of audiobooks you can find reviewed at audiophilemagazine.com. For Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine, I'm Joe Reed. Thanks for listening.